the second Sunday of Lent. That's exciting, right? Two down, is it three to go till Easter? It feels like it comes later, like Easter comes later, so the season of Lent seems to start earlier, but the reality is it's only 40 days, right? So it doesn't start any earlier. It always has started right in the middle of February. It just must be like I'm getting older, so the time seems to just keep moving faster and faster. But these 40 days, not counting Sundays, because Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We are a resurrection people, so we believe that Sunday is not counted inside of those 40 days that are representing the time that Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted, and it's right before he begins his public ministry. Traditionally, as we've talked about before, this is the period of time that new believers in the faith are being mentored and ready to be accepted because they will be baptized in Easter, on Easter. What better time to symbolize the rebirth of yourself in Christ than the day that we celebrate Christ's uh, resurrection. It's been a time, hopefully for you, of of Feed was a couple years ago, I think, we wrote a Lenten devotional. You guys remember that? And we put it out on the website. It was my first time that I'd ever written a devotional, and I had like 37 passages, it seems like. Like it, was, it really wasn't that many. It was only like probably six or eight because there, there were four of us writing there. But it's, it was really a time as I reflected through that and I pulled some of them up and I went through the posts. It was a time of self-reflection and a time where we're trying to figure out where we are and, and whose we are. Uh, and we've talked uh, the past five weeks that, or the five weeks that we're leading into, we're talking about the words that Christ talks about on the cross. Right? And we talked last week about crucifixion being a horrific example of punishment. And we dispelled the popular myth that is actually right there, that Jesus was crucified 10 or 20 feet in the air. That's really simply probably not true. It was really probably 3 or 4 feet, maybe here, that he was crucified. Probably because it was cheap and because they could reuse things. Uh, Jesus is crucified not very far off the ground, so he would, have, he would have been able to be heard. His final words would have been heard by everybody around him. And there would, he would have been able to hear the words of the people that were taunting him. Our scripture last week talked about the guards, the Roman soldiers playing dice underneath there and, and raffling off his clothes and, and things like that. Um, and it's really significant because the manner in which Jesus dies is not quick. And it's not easy. So the seven times that he lifts himself against these nails that are in his feet, and he's got to lift himself up because he's hanging kind of like this. He's got to lift himself up to get enough breath so that he can muster out the words that he's talking about. And last week we talked about, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And how that relates back to us. And how he's really speaking at this time across all time and space and saying, Father, forgive Ken. He knows not what he does. Father, forgive David. He knows not what he does. Father, forgive Mark. He knows not what he does. And today, we're talking about the, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And as his muscles fail and his lungs are filling with fluid, as he's essentially drowning, he decides to continue his ministry and continue to bring people into a closer relationship with his father. And our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 and 33, and then 39 through 43. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. 
And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourselves. And while you're at it, us too. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God? When you, even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Jesus is being crucified with common criminals. They're probably not really all that common because if you stole something, the Romans did not crucify you. If you uh, were a liar in court, the Romans didn't crucify you. These were probably some hardened guys. It doesn't tell us what they did to be crucified. In fact, the only person that has anything written on the placard above their cross is Jesus, where it says, here is the king of the Jews. But Jesus is being crucified with these criminals, and even at the moment of his death, what does Jesus do? He offers forgiveness. Even at the moment where he should be righteously angry, Jesus offers forgiveness. And this is the constant in Jesus' earthly ministry. For the very short period of time that he's with us, we think about three total years Jesus is in public ministry. So he's, he's not in ministry for very long. And even in his ministry, the hallmark of his ministry is he hangs out with people that he, does, he should not be hanging out with. Right? He allows a prostitute to wash his feet with her tears. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He goes and eats dinner at Zacchaeus' house. In fact, he has the Last Supper with the guys that are in, the closest to him that are going to fail him the most. Throughout Luke's gospel, from the time of the announcement of Jesus' birth, the gospel portrays Jesus' concern for the sinner, the outcast, the unclean, the nobody. And as we look to the conversation between the two criminals, the one on his left and the one on his right, I think we have to consider what does this teach us about Jesus, but more importantly, what does it teach us about ourselves? Here's the thing. These two guys were not religious, based on what we know about them. They were not religious. And the people that Jesus hangs out with were not religious. And non-religious people were the same 2,000 years ago as they are today. The vast majority of non-religious people do not want to hang out with the religious people. And you see that in Scripture. There isn't really an occasion in which you see the religious people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that take compassion on the people around them that are less than in the entirety of Scripture. And Jesus rails against it. He flips tables. He drives people out of the temple with a whip. He gets righteously angry. But they don't want to hang out with the religious people. It could be the holier-than-thou attitude. It could be the judgment that they face when they walk in the door. There's a really great song. There's a really great song, and I can't remember it, remember it, but it talks about sitting in the back row, and the guy that's traveling, the girl that, that shouldn't be in church, 
You might recognize that. It'll probably happen on the radio when I leave. But it talks about judgment and you shouldn't be here. And Jesus is the exact opposite of that. It might be many things that people don't want to hang out with the religious people of the day. But people wanted to hang out with Jesus. People wanted to hang out with Jesus. It, they probably knew something different. It, pro, it could have been his skinny jeans or his flat brim cap or his cool beard, but it, it really wasn't. Like There wasn't a gimmick to Jesus. There wasn't a thing about Jesus other than Jesus reflected the love of God. And the love of Jesus was unconditional, it was undeniable, and it permeated and was present in everything that he did. For Jesus' culture was king. Wherever Jesus went, he created the kind of place, the kind of environment that was warm and accepting and full of love. In his relationship with God, in his quest for people to come to God, for better relationships with God, he created a new culture of religion, a new paradigm of acceptance and missional living that people wanted to be around. And quite frankly, it scared the religious establishment. We didn't want Jesus to to tell the temple leaders that they were wrong. Because that means we'd lose power. We didn't want Jesus to call us out when we weren't living the way that we should have been living because that meant we had to face some uncomfortable truths when we looked in the mirror. But Jesus still did it because He created an environment and an acceptance that said, I love you just the way that you are. I love you just the way that you are. But that doesn't mean you can stay there. You've got to change. And that brings us to the second point. Jesus was mission-focused. Jesus had a laser-like focus that centered around doing exactly what He was supposed to be doing. From the minute He accepted His call into public ministry, He was about the work of His Father. And really, even before that, when He gets lost in the temple, and I I still to this day can't figure out how you could leave a 12-year-old for several days... And just forget he was around. And he goes back and he's like, woman, where would I be in my dad's house? Like, where else would I be? I love 12-year-old Jesus. I love 12-year-old Jesus. I love it. But he's been about his father's business from the moment he could actually be about his father's business. Right? In fact, when we use the communion liturgy, whether we use it in foundations or hillside, it spells out exactly what Jesus was sent to do. And it comes from Luke. He was sent to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when God would save His people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. He fed the sick, or he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, and he ate with sinners. And back to our story, we read earlier in the the reading that Jesus was crucified with two criminals, and one of them berates and taunts Jesus. If you're the Messiah, then save yourself, and while you're at it, save us too. These two criminals were the lowest of the low. The Greek word for criminal here has a similar root to the word kaka, 
which is not good stuff. We got jokes in church, right? And here is Jesus dying with the people that the Greek word calls, you know. Here's Jesus dying with the people. And yet even in death, one of the criminals recognizes that this is the Messiah. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you get to your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you get to your kingdom. And Jesus offers him paradise. He says, today... You will be with me in paradise. Jesus is struggling. He can hardly breathe. And here he is on his death day in agony, reaching out to lost people. The people that society has thrown away. He's looking on this criminal with compassion, love, and forgiveness. He reaches out in grace and mercy. He's praying for those that persecute him and turning the other cheek. But still, Jesus offers this message to anybody that will accept it. And all the criminal said to Jesus was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus offers him paradise. He doesn't recite the Apostles' Creed. He doesn't have to affirm the Trinity or explain the Wesleyan ideas of prevenient justifying and sanctifying grace. He doesn't even ask Jesus to come into his heart. He didn't know any of that. He simply looked at Jesus and equally on his dying day, in his agony, recognized that Jesus was the Savior of the world, pushed himself up and said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus grants him paradise. The last hope that this guy has is to say, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Remember, throughout the Bible, it can be taken to mean to deliver or to redeem. When God remembers people, he saves them. He wasn't just asking him to think about him when Jesus is in heaven. He's making an earnest plea to God in that moment to remember me, redeem me. I know that I am broken. In that moment, the criminal becomes face to face. He looks in the mirror and realizes everything up until that point he has done has been broken. And in that moment, he cries out, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, redeem me. There have been, there have been lots of times, especially when, we, when Madison was born, that it would be bleary nights of Madison screaming, and I would have to get up at five to go in and, and be surrounded by kids that were making noise because I was still a band director, right? And sixth grade band was, for some god-awful reason, 8 a.m., Right? And you're not sleeping and you're standing there or you have a particularly bad moment with your kid and you rest on the sink and you stare bleary-eyed into the, into the mirror. You guys been there with me? Those of you that have kids or even if you haven't had kids, you stare blearily in the mirror and you're like, God help me. I'm not sure I can get through this. And in that moment, the criminal is doing the exact same thing. He's saying, deliver me. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. 
Let's talk a little bit about the word paradise. The original meaning of the word it refers to a walled garden. Right? It was the king's garden, and there would have been flowing water in a place where there wasn't a whole lot of it, and beautiful flowers and trees and greenery everywhere. It was a place of serenity and peace, and it was overflowing with abundance, and we lived there. We lived there originally, and then we messed it up. Genesis tells us that God intended to live in paradise with us in the Garden of Eden, but because we messed it up, paradise was lost. And there at the gates, he set an angel swinging a flaming sword to keep humanity from entering paradise. But in this moment, hanging between two violent criminals, as he is dying, Jesus is writing a check and undoing what kept us from being with God in paradise. That's why he came. In this microcosm, can you see what's going on? Even in Jesus' death in Calvary, he's living out his mission. All four Gospels tell us there are two criminals on either side of Jesus. There are three crosses at Calvary. You may not know what the logo of this church is because, in fact, we very rarely display it down here. You may not know. Is it on the bulletin? I think it's on the bulletin. But you may not know. It's three crosses. Memorial United Methodist Church was thinking about a symbol for the church. And many, many years ago, the leadership said, let's use three crosses. Not just one cross, not a dove, not an empty tune, but three crosses. They're on the outside of the building. They're on the logo of the church. They're on the letterhead. They're on the business cards if we had them. We did it one time. There are three crosses on the website. The three crosses remind us of the mission. And especially for today, I would ask you which cross are you hanging from? Which criminal are you? Because Romans tells us that we all fall short and miss the mark. It's within us, this bend towards sin. Jesus' mission was not a clean one. Jesus' mission was not a clean one. And, and I'll give you an example of how that plays out kind of even in my own life, right? My mother, and I've used this story before, my mother is a recovering alcoholic. Thanks to the grace of God and the will of the Holy Spirit, she has been clean for, it'll be four years this year. In fact, in March, we will celebrate her four-year birthday. And that's truly her birthday because I got my mom back after 15 years of not having her. So every year we go, Melissa and the kids and I, we go to the healing place, which is the place in which she rediscovered herself. And it's a great ministry, truly a ministry of God. And every year I become uncomfortable, right? I become uncomfortable because I know that what I'm going to see is more godliness in that place than I've ever seen in my life before. Because when you walk in, when you walk in, it completely changes your mind about the words, those people. Those people. And we've talked about using those words, those people. It completely changes your mind. Because the reality is, is God is in the midst of those people. 
And God has called us to be in the midst of those people through the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission is earthy. It's raw. It means walking with someone when they take their last breath. It means showing up in places where Jesus would have shown up. Jesus didn't show up in the temple. He went to see the lepers and gave them a hug. He didn't go constantly and eat dinner at the religious leader's house. He went and ate with sinners and tax collectors. The mission is not clean. It is not neat. There are people who don't even know it, but deep down, they are crying out to God, send someone my way. Send someone my way. And they're praying, even though they may not even know that, that you are that person. And I think Lent is a perfect time to bring people in. Right? It's not a negative time, even though it feels very heavy because we know that at the end of Lent on Good Friday the darkness overcomes. And for a brief minute, evil wins. For a brief minute, it wins. But then, the resurrection happens. And I once asked Mike, when he was here, and we were sitting in the office, I once asked Mike, I said, Mike, like, how do you do it every day? How do you preach 17 funerals in the first year that you're here, and and I was involved in most of them. How do you preach 17 funerals? How do you walk people through the death of a child? How do you maintain any sort of sanity with the mess that goes on in the world around us? And he gave me the most profound answer. He said, I read the last page of the Bible. I know how the story ends. And this month, as we prep for Easter, we know how the story ends. We know that good wins and that it's our mission to be about the work of our Father because that's what we're called to do. We cry out to God this morning and we ask Him to send hope, send help, send someone to tell us good news. And you are a resurrection people made in the image of God. It's time for us to roll up our sleeves and be about our Father's business. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, for the gift of your word, we are grateful. We ask that you root it down deep in our hearts and that we would see in ourselves the second criminal, the criminal that recognizes that we are a people in need of your grace constantly because if we were to try to measure up to you, we would never ever be able to achieve it. Pour out your spirit on us. Wrap your arms around us. Hold us gently in your embrace that we may know true peace and be built up and equipped to be about your business. Pour into us and move us out from where we are. Make us take that next step. Make us look around and say, who is in need of you? And make us bold 
in seizing those opportunities that you put in our paths, that we may share the good news, that we may partner with Christ and heal the sick and feed the hungry and eat with sinners, that we may continue to be transformed and moved in holiness towards a more perfect union with you. We ask all of this in your most precious and holy name. Amen.